We are continuing our series this morning on the Gospel of John. This morning's message is entitled, A Woman, A Well, and Worship. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. We're going to read the passage here in its entirety. It is long. Stay with me this morning. If you missed the reading this morning, you're going to miss the sermon. It is all based right here on this narrative, this wonderful story. It is God's living, inspired word for us this morning. So can I have your complete attention as we read it. By the way, whenever I read a scripture and go through it, I'm teaching my children this as well. Number one, we're asking, as we read, what do we learn about God in this passage? What is God doing? And the second set of questions, what do we learn about us? What do we learn about man? And how do we respond? So with that in mind, let us read John chapter 4, verse 1, the woman at the well. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. In verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Friends, the Savior of the world is the Messiah. The Anointed One who came 2,000 years ago to seek a Samaritan woman and to save a Samaritan village. Why? That they may be true worshipers of God. And the good news this morning is God is still seeking. God is still on the move. God is still making true worshipers. Those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Among the most unlikely of people and the most unlikely of places. Yes, even here at Palm Vista Community Church. Come worship God in spirit and truth. Let's pray. Oh Lord, pierce our ears to hear this morning. Open our eyes to see that we may be true worshipers of the one and only living God. Holy Spirit, illuminate your word this morning. Teach us that we may respond, that we may receive, that we may be satisfied in you, in our God, and he alone. Amen. Well, our theme for this morning, at least our theme verse, at least my theme verse here for this passage is John 
4, verse 23 in your notes. But the hour is coming, it is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God the Father is seeking true worshipers. Who is He seeking? People. He's seeking you. He's seeking me. But a little caution this morning as well. God does not seek as we seek, as we as humans seek. As I was seeking in vain last week to find my pruning shears. If you knew me or have heard my past messages, you don't mess with my coconuts, you don't mess with my banana plants, and you don't mess with my pruning shears. I was looking in vain for my lost pruning shears. But that's not how God seeks us. You see, God is not playing that once popular pictorial game, Where's Waldo? You know the guy with the red and white striped shirt and that busy picture? No, no. God knows where Waldo is. God knows where you are as well. Okay? He does not seek as we seek. Neither is God seeking us in worship because he's desperate. No, no. He's seeking us because he is deserving of our very worship. Why? That we may bring him glory. He seeks us in order to save us. And I think a lot of us who've been to church for a while would know that. He is seeking us to save us. But you know also, he is seeking us to satisfy us as well. God the Father is on the move to seek us in order to save us and to satisfy us. That we may give him the glory due his name. That he may give us the eternal spring of water that will never run dry. Oh, I love that image of that spring, that eternal wellspring of water. That image speaks to me. If you have ever been to a freshwater spring, maybe in central Florida, you know what I'm talking about. On a hot summer day. I'm thinking in my mind of Blue Spring. I used to go there when I lived in Orlando. Oh, that fresh, clean, crystal clear water. This spring, Blue Spring, pumps out 104 million gallons of water each day. And that's not even the largest. You want the largest, the mother of all springs? Go to Silver Springs in Ocala. It gushes out 500 million gallons of water a day of fresh water. That translates to over 100 cubic feet of water per second. How much is 100 cubic feet of water? I have no idea. Let me tell you, it's a lot. It is a lot per second. I'm impressed, okay? You get in the picture here? It's a picture of abundance. Silver Springs is the mother of all springs. Ah, but God, he's the father of all springs. And that's what he offers us today. Not just to save us, oh, but to satisfy and quench our deepest thirsts. The Father is seeking. He's seeking worshipers. Well, how does he seek? How does the Father seek worshipers? How does the Father seek you and me? He does it as we learn this passage through his Son, Jesus. Let's look at verse 34 of John 4. Jesus said to them, that is his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Who sent Jesus? God the Father and to accomplish his work. Whose work? The Father's work. What is 
the Father's work, what is he doing? He is seeking worshipers. So with that in mind, let's go back to our story, to the beginning, and see Jesus at work in this passage of narrative. We read in verse 3, He, that is Christ, left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. We can easily just cruise, off that, cruise over that first verse. He had to pass through Samaria. A little Greek word there. could also be translated, it was necessary that he pass through Samaria. In other words, this, I believe, is more than just a geographic necessity. He had to go there to get back to Galilee. It was also, I believe, a divine imperative. Let me explain. You see, to go from Galilee, back to Galilee, from Judea, you had to go north through Samaria. Much like if you're going to Orlando, you'd have to go through Palm Beach, Palm Beach County, and the Treasure Coast if you're going to take the most direct or at least the quickest route to Orlando, which is the turnpike, right? But some of the most devout and pious Jews chose to avoid Samaria altogether. You see, Samaritans were considered by Jews as half-Jews, as half-breeds. If you know your history, the Assyrians evaded the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. And when they invaded, they repopulated that area of Samaria, Samaria with foreigners. And many of those Jews who lived there married and adopted the customs of the foreigners, including their gods. In fact, later on, the Samaritans actually constructed their own rival sanctuary to Jerusalem at Mount Gerizim. And they also discarded the majority of the Old Testament. You see, the Samaritans, in the Jews' eyes, were considered apostates. They were considered idolaters. For a Jew to call someone a Samaritan was a racial slur. Because of that, some Jews would actually avoid Samaria altogether. They would actually cross over the Jordan River and go on the east side and travel north so as to avoid the region entirely. It would be like for us going to Orlando and crossing the Everglades and taking I-75 up to Orlando. Could we do it? Is it possible? Of course it is. Is it longer? Yes, it is as well. You see, with Jesus, oh, he had to pass through Samaria. Why? Because he had a divine appointment, a divine encounter with a Samaritan woman. We read of that in verse 6 and following. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A woman, a woman of Samaria. For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. See, not only was a Samaritan a Samaritan, this person a Samaritan, this Samaritan was a woman. Not only was this Samaritan a woman, but she was a moral outcast. More likely or not, she was a harlot. You see, as a Samaritan, she was considered unclean, as we talked about, by any God-fearing Jew. But but didn't Jesus know this? I mean, even she knew that in verse 9. For that verse 9 can be translated, for Jews do not use the dishes or things that Samaritans have used. Why? Because they're considered unclean. But she was also a woman. 
You see, in this time and age and culture, men usually avoided speaking to women in public. And furthermore, traditionally, the well was a place where men might come to pick up women. Well, apparently, she was the type of woman that could be picked up. She was a harlot, a lady of shame. So we read it was a sixth hour. By Jewish reckoning, that means it was noon. Sunrise being the beginning of the day, six hours, it was noon. Women usually traveled to the well. They did that, but in groups. And secondly, they usually traveled to the well in the early morning or the early evening to avoid the heat of the day. But here we read a lone woman at midday in the heat of the day. You see, for her to do so spoke of her isolation. It spoke of her shame that she had something to hide. That becomes more clear in verse 18 when Jesus reveals that she has had five husbands or five men and the one she's currently with is not her husband. You see, in one simple phrase, give me a drink, spoken by a Jewish rabbi to a lone Samaritan, Jesus broke all the rules of Jewish piety. All of them. You see, the Jewish eyes, this was a scandal. But for the women being saved and those who are going to be saved through her testimony, this, my friends, is called scandalous grace. And here we see it. The Father had come to seek a worshiper from the most unlikely of people and places, an unclean, lone harlot in a Samaritan village called Sychar. But before we dismiss her or distance ourselves from her, we may just have more in common with her than you may first think. To quote J.I. Packer, our lives are in the Bible and we do not understand them until we find them there. May I propose that we too can find our lives, yes, even in a lone Samaritan woman at a well. For in this woman, we see one who is riddled with shame. One who's experienced broken relationship after broken relationship. A woman who was unclean. A woman who was unworthy to be addressed by Jesus. And if we're all brutally honest here this morning in our heart of hearts, that too could be said of us prior to knowing Christ. We too are no different in our heart, in our character, or in our sinful condition that point alone, I could preach on the rest of the sermon. It'd be worthy. But something else I want you to see as well, that she was no different than many of us in terms of her response to Christ as well, that she gives at the well. And we're going to take some time to unpack that, starting with verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And catch her response, verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank it from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up 
to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The Samaritan woman, verse 10, failed to recognize who was addressing her. If only she had known the one who was addressing her was the creator, the one who created the very water that she was looking to drink, that he was the one who created the well, every brook, every river, every spring. If only she knew that he was the redeemer, the one who had come to purify her of her sins and to cleanse her of all unrighteousness. If only she knew that he was the one to satisfy her deepest thirsts, that he was the one who came not only to give living water, but he was the one who could turn water into wine, as we learned several weeks ago. But she did not yet have spiritual eyes to see. Like Nicodemus, like the disciples in this passage as well, she could not see beyond the human plane. She could not see beyond her five senses. But you know what? We might not fault her, would we? For her lack of understanding of Christ's words. His metaphorical speech. But her problem was this. It wasn't that she had missed that grade school class on Aramaic poetry. You know that class on similes and metaphors? That, that wasn't her problem. Her problem was she had missed Jesus. She had failed to see who was speaking to her. And she did not understand. In the words of one commentator, D.A. Carson, her vision stretched no farther than a bucket. Her vision stretched no farther than a bucket. First, it's pretty simple. Christ, Jesus, you want some water? Well, where's your bucket? No bucket, no water, no can do. No bucket, no water, no can do. Does that reflect your attitude as you approach God? How can you do this? She did not yet have spiritual eyes. She could not see beyond human means. She could not see beyond the physical world. She could not see beyond her own earthly needs. Can you see beyond the buckets? Can you see beyond the earthly needs? As Miguel mentioned earlier this morning, can you see beyond the state of our economy? Can you see beyond the swine flu epidemic or pandemic, whatever it is now? Can you see beyond... Moms, your own children, and their educational or health needs. Can you see beyond your own retirement plan or what's left of it? Can you see beyond your current boss who seems to rule your world and your life? Can you see Jesus not just on Sunday when we're worshiping him through song and word? Can you see him in the nitty-gritty of everyday life? For that is where we worship God day in. In day out. And that is where life is lived. If you cannot see beyond the bucket this morning, your world is small, your world is puny, and you are not worshiping God in spirit and truth. Because the truth is this, that Jesus has come to give abundant grace and salvation. He has come to give you eternal life, a life bubbling with joy, a fullness to a spiritually bankrupt people. That's you and me. The truth was, Jesus was offering a Samaritan woman heavenly water. 
He was offering her indoor plumbing, 100 cubic feet per second. And she was settling for bitter, finite well water. She had missed the gift of God. Verse 10. If you'd have known the gift of God. When you, when you read the word gift, put in the word grace. Grace is a gift. She had missed the grace of God. The undeserved grace of God in her midst. And she did not see her need for grace. She did not see her grace for this true, this need for this true living water because she failed to perceive the condition of her own heart. She failed to see her sin, which had precipitated this encounter at the well in the very first place. She had morally forsaken God's best, as revealed in his word, in his will, and she had settled for the rest. She had forsaken God's best. She had settled for the rest. And that rest wasn't too impressive, was it? Sinful, broken relationships and a life of dashed hopes. She was like those whom God had indicted through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Those of you might be wondering, cisterns were pits dug in the ground to collect rainwater. And they were easily filled with stale, contaminated water. Her life was one of buckets and broken cisterns that could not satisfy her, could not purify her, and she did not get it. But Christ was not done seeking her because Christ was on a mission. What was his mission? To seek, to save, and to satisfy her with only that which could satisfy her, himself, his God, and Father. So Christ helps. Christ helps her discern her own need. I love that. In his graciousness, he helps her discern her greatest need and sin. How? By touching the most sensitive, vulnerable area of her life. We see it in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Ah, to quote John Piper, the quickest way to a heart is through a wound. Go call your husband. Jesus had just touched her wound. What is Christ touching in you today? That wound. Maybe it's an immoral relationship. Maybe it's a pornographic image that dogs you daily. Perhaps the child whom you have exasperated or have embittered. Perhaps it's sluggardly education or vocational choices that you have made. Perhaps it's selfish financial choices that you have made. And today you would say, I feel like I'm in shackles. I am bound and hopeless. And Christ is touching that wound this morning. But he's doing it for a purpose. He wants you to see your condition. But he wants you also to see his grace in living water. He wants you to experience that well, that eternal well of living water in your life. And he's touching you right now. 
and you find yourself this morning, you're at that well, you're all alone, and it's the middle of the day. But it's through this nursing wound that Christ is showing you the depths of your sin, that Christ is humbling you, and he is calling you to trust him for the wellspring of eternal water. But to do so, church, you must confess your sin. You must turn from your broken, putrid, stinky cisterns that you've built. The biblical word for this, to turn from, is to repent. Repent and look beyond the buckets. Repent and look beyond your own immediate circumstances. But how hard to do that, isn't it? is it not? How hard to do that in our pride? Because notice the woman's response to Christ after he touches this wound. It seems so abrupt. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you said in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Oh, yes, it is. It is from the one who is speaking right now. Jesus does not enter into the controversy, does he? He does not take the bait. He is not diverted from his mission. But he gets to the heart of the matter. He says basically, listen, both the Jerusalem temple and this place you worship in Mount Gerizim in Samaria, it is becoming obsolete. It is no more. The question is no longer, where do you worship? The question is, whom do you worship? And how do you worship? That is the heart of the matter. And that brings us to the climax of the story of Christ's glorious confession, which we read in verse 23 and following. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Uh, Jesus said to her, verse 26, I who speak to you am he. In Christ's very words, in his very confession, Christ is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one who has come to seek you and to save you. I am the one who has come to seek you and I am the one by which you will be saved. I am the one who has come to make you a true worshiper of God. I'm the one who makes it possible for the Messiah is here. I in the living temple. I in the place where you meet with God. Worship comes through me, the Messiah. Oh, what sweet words. Church, that is our confidence this morning. Point one, that the Father is seeking true worshipers. He is on the move. He is seeking you and me. And you can be confident of that. He will not be deterred. He will not be derailed. Neither was he, not, neither was he at this well when he came face to face with the Samaritan harlot. But point two, true worshipers must worship God in spirit and truth. The fact is, we're all worshipers this morning, aren't we? 
We're all worshipers. Why? We were all made by God our Creator to worship something. Oh, hopefully I pray it's God, as revealed in the Bible. But as we know, it can also be money. It can also be family. It can also be our health or our job. If we are not loving God with all our hearts, all our soul, all our mind, i.e., if we're not worshiping God and loving Him in that way, we will be giving our utmost love and affection to something or to someone else. Because we all are worshipers. So the question this morning, once again, is not if we worship. No, no, no. The question is, who do we worship and how? Are we those who worship in spirit and truth? Spirit and truth, another way of saying, the how and whom of worship. Let's take a look at the whom first, the latter of the two words, what it means to worship God in truth. True worshipers must worship God in truth. And true worship goes through Jesus Christ. He's the giver of eternal life. We read in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. You would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Are you asking in Christ's name? Are you looking to and going to anything or anyone else for life? Are you looking to anyone else for thirst quenching, satisfaction? Are you looking to anyone or anything else for soul cleansing atonement? If you are, it's idolatry and it's futility as well. How do we know this? Verse 23, when Christ said the hour is coming and is now here. What is this hour that Christ is referring to? Repeatedly in Scripture, this hour refers to Christ's death on the cross and his subsequent glorification. This is the hour for which he came. This is the hour. For it is in Christ, in Christ alone, who reconciles us to the Father, who has paid the just penalty for our sin and rebellion. It is he and he alone who thus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But there's more. He also rose from the dead. And in doing so, it demonstrated that he is the new wellspring of eternal life. He is the one who has come. And his hour is here. So to worship God in truth is to come to Jesus. It's to worship God through and in Jesus Christ. It's to worship with this knowledge, to worship with this trust that he's come to seek and to save and to satisfy. But that's not enough. That's critical. But it's not enough. There's more to worship. You see, the mind that truly apprehends this glorious truth will be ignited and joined by a spirit that experiences this truth as well. Illustration. We recently watched the family, the movie Back to the Future. But with just a little warning, if you haven't watched the movie in 20 years, you might want to review it again before you watch your children watch it. Just a good practical thing that I don't learn by now. But anyway, we were watching Back to the Future. And one of the kids' favorite part, at least the part they laughed most about, was near the beginning when Marty, the wannabe guitar hero, takes his electric guitar and plugs it into this gigantic, oversized, wall-sized amp. 
of the dock of the mad scientist. Maybe you remember this scene. He plugs it in. He stands back and plays the first chord. And he is literally blown away. <laughs> Ten feet back, like a rushing wind, like a cannonball shot out of a cannon. What a picture that is to me of worshiping, not only in truth, but in spirit and in truth. You see, to worship in truth is simply to play the air guitar. Simply to play the air guitar. Oh, my friends, it must be amplified in our hearts. That's what jolts us. That's what moves us. That's what makes us dance. That's what makes us sing. It's the Spirit of God working, bringing these truths to life, that we could worship Him, not just in truth, yes, in truth, and all but truth, but spirit and truth. Our spirits must be awakened and moved by the truth we profess. Oh, sound doctrine will produce passionate worshipers of God. It's the way God designed us to be worshipers in spirit and in truth. Sounds like a spirit. Be in your notes. You see, if Jesus is coming, if coming to Jesus is worship in truth, having our spirit, that is our heart, awakened by these truths, spring-fed by the Holy Spirit, is what it means to worship in spirit. John 4.24 says this, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit. God is not material. In fact, God is unknowable apart from his spirit working in our hearts to awaken our spirit. It says in the word of God, the spirit begets spirit. All right? That is capital S, the Holy Spirit who works in our hearts, our very spirit, to awaken us to these truths then become alive in our hearts. In other words, we must have our hearts quickened with new life. And this is the work of his spirit, his Holy Spirit. The fuel of truth must be ignited by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So what are the implications for this today, church? To put it all together, it's a spirit that quickens our heart to receive the truth, that it's true. But it's also the truth of God that fuels our worship, that we may passionately worship him. In the words I believe that Jonathan Edwards, there must be light in the mind and heat in the heart. There must be light in the mind. There must be heat in the heart. Spirit and truth. If you're here and you have no affections for God, no heat in the heart, but you profess a sound doctrine, a correct doctrine, but you have no affections for God, you are not a true worshiper. If the truth of God does not stir you to tears at times or cause you to shout for joy at other times, if there is never any quickening or any flame when meditating on the cross, when worshiping in song, when serving others with his strength, when sharing your faith, if there's not a flicker, if there's no flame, you are not worshiping in spirit and truth. You are not a true worshiper. You're like the person, we'll call him Mr. Hallmark, after Hallmark greeting cards, who writes generic anniversary cards for other people's lovers. You're just writing the words, but you're not sitting down to that candlelight dinner. 
Without the Spirit, worship is dead. It's simply an external act in word only. To quote the prophet Isaiah, actually through the lips of Jesus, in Matthew 15, verse 8, we read, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. In vain. On the other hand, a person who has great affections, has great heat in the heart, but is based on a wrong view of God, is not a true worshiper of God. You take Christ out of the equation of your worship, you take the hour for which he came out of the equation, you will not have true worship. God doesn't care how exuberant you are, how times you raise your hand and shout. He doesn't care if you're barking, you're falling down. He doesn't care. It's not true worship. It's not based on the toning work of Jesus Christ, the hour of which he came. If that is you, you'll be like the person, we'll call her Miss Daisy, who writes flowery, flowerly, flowery, yes, I can say that, love letters to her husband, but sends them to strangers. That's one who worships in spirit, but not in truth. In fact, it cannot happen. True worshipers worship in spirit and truth. So how does this apply? Where do I go with this this morning? Well, first of all, I hope you catch my desire. I think it's that of the text. It's my burden this morning that we would be passionate, truthful worshipers of God, that worship in hearts and mind, that worship in spirit and truth. Why? For the hour has come. The Father is seeking true worshipers. So how do you become a true worshiper in closing? I'll put it this way. You begin by marveling at Jesus. In verse 27, we read, the disciples marveled that Jesus would talk to an unclean Samaritan woman. They were dumbfounded. They were probably incredulous. That is not the marveling that I'm talking about. We need to move to the next verse and now see the Samaritan woman. We read that this unclean Samaritan woman marveled at Jesus, that he would talk, that he would reveal himself to her, and that he would reveal herself to her as well. And she marveled, could this be the one who told me everything I ever did? Slight exaggeration, would you not say? But she was excited. She got the point. She marveled at Jesus, at who he was, what he's done. And he went and told her friends, the village. He then came to meet him as well. And the village too marveled at Jesus. Oh friends, may we marvel that Jesus would seek us out to make us true worshipers of God. Come to the well today. For some of you that means meeting Jesus for the very first time in experiencing this living water, the fullness of which he promises in his word. Come. For those who are Christians this morning, it may mean intensifying and deepening your worship. What it means to worship in spirit and truth.
on a daily basis. Not just on Sunday. Not just on Wednesday when we meet for home groups. For some of you, this means studying. Studying the Jesus at the well. How do we study him? We open up the word of God. It means disciplined study. At times it means rigorous thought. Rigorous thought. You may wonder this morning, why do I lack strong affections for God? You know, I, I, I do believe in him, but I, I come and I feel so listless on Sundays. I often feel so listless on Wednesdays. What could it be that you don't open up your word of God? You've not come to Jesus to study him, to know him. For it is to know him which fuels our passion for him. You may have some work to do this morning, some study to do. We've been lazy, indifferent to the word of God. But it's just not study alone. You must come asking as well. Come to the well asking. Those who are weary, those who are in need, are in thirst. Come and ask as well to be refreshed. Come ask to receive grace for a thirsty and weary soul. Ask, 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 pray, 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 and do it again on a daily basis. We must come asking. It's not a one-time affair. This is an ongoing asking. It's acknowledging our dependence upon God, our need for Him daily. That, my friends, is worship. And it's in receiving His grace, the eternal wellspring of life, and living for the glory of God. That is worship. True worshipers are not self-sufficient. True worshipers are Christ-sufficient. They don't just know about Christ. They want to know Him in this eternal spring. Don't wait. Don't wait. John 4, verse 35. Christ says this, glorious words. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift your eyes and see that the fields are white for a harvest. I can imagine Christ saying these words as the streaming Samaritan from the village, dressed in white, came to the well. Look, the harvest is ripe. It is white for harvest. We read in Amos 9, verse 13, the day has come. This is the day that Amos prophesied that Christ is referring to in this text. It says, Amos 9, 13 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes will sow the seed. In other words, the day has come when not only will people sow, but they will reap. It is a time of harvest, for the hour has come. And listen to these next words in Amos 9. The mountains shall drip sweet wine. And all the hills shall flow. They will gush with it. In other words, church, this is a time of harvest. In abundance. As the Father is about doing his work to gather worshipers, true worshipers, in spirit and truth. The Savior of the world has come. Come, learned Nicodemus. Come, unclean Samaritan. Come, pagan Gentile. Come, Palm Vista. Let's pray. Oh, Father, be still our hearts now as we desire to open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to you. Holy Spirit, 
amplify your words in our hearts right now as we respond in worship through song. Father, we do confess this morning that we're tired of broken cisterns, of leaky buckets. Father, we turn, we repent this morning, and we come to you, O Jesus. We ask that we give you our hearts, and we ask that you would fill our hearts this morning with your Spirit, even as we confess our sin through song. O Lord, fill us. We give you our hearts now. And we may experience your eternal well of eternal life, springing forth even now in increasing measure, overflowing in abundance, that we may worship you now in spirit and in truth. Let us stand and let us sing, church.